Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. And today our topic is Suicide's Legacy of Complex Grief and Compassion. And I have a wonderful guest. Her name is Reverend Dr. Kay Randall May. And Kay is an author who was writing a book on prayer groups when her 27-year-old son Paul ended his life in August of 1998. Kay found solace through prayer and artistic expression. This tragedy has taught her much about the severity of untreated depression the toll which suicide takes on loved ones left behind, and compassion for anyone faced with complex grief. She and her husband co-facilitate a suicide survivors group in Phoenix, Arizona. Kay, welcome to our show. Thank you, Gloria. It's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you on, and we so appreciate your coming on. And you are, I was saying to you earlier, you are an amazing woman. You have a a Ph.D. In, uh, from Berkeley. In, can you tell our audience what that's in? I have a Ph.D. in entomology that I earned many years ago as I went directly through high school and into undergraduate school and as a biology major uh-huh. and then followed through in entomology, which is the study of insects. That was many, many years ago, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I had several experiences which uh, turned me more to spirituality. Right, and you you became a minister yes. before your son died? Yes, I've been an ordained minister since 1982, and my son died in 1998. Uh-huh. And what uh, got you to become a minister? The various experiences that I'm talking about that I alluded to, uh, including an experience in which I was healed uh, through prayer uh, spontaneously uh, of a rather major hemorrhagic incident, but then uh-huh. also a lot of uh, spiritual study and prayer groups and that kind of thing. Uh, and I do want to talk to you a little later about your book on uh, prayer groups and that kind of thing. And you also, as I was reading your bio, um, had your father was missing when you were a child. Yes, my father, um, I eventually did find out what happened to him just recently within the last year. Oh, my goodness. And so was able to complete that and close that, which was an open-ended grief for many years. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, I know our audience is going to wonder, would you like to tell us what happened to him? Well, apparently, my well, my parents had a divorce when uh-huh. I was 18, and apparently my father immediately remarried. My mother, out of many complex emotions, never told me and uh, never allowed me to stay in touch with him. And I found some letters where he tried to reach me, and I never received them. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so he went, he went off uh, joined another family, uh, had more children, apparently, and I, so I have eventually have his obituary in which he died in uh, 80, in 86 or 87, and, and um, he had died of a heart attack, And but I wasn't even mentioned in the obituary, but at least I know what yeah. happened to him. Well, um, yeah, that will be interesting to come back to that after we talk a little bit about your son, just in terms of of what you would recommend for people and how you've dealt with that and how you have, um, I would imagine you kind of, uh, as you said, you closed the loop on, on that with your father, and I imagine there were some things you did to do that, and maybe we'll yeah. want to get back to that also. Absolutely. Could you talk a little bit about your son? My son, Paul, was a wonderful student. He was a very uh, disciplined individual, had a great sense of humor, 
periods, a long period of time, but I didn't realize it at the time. Even though as a minister I had been trained through my ministerial training in seeing signs of depression, he hit it very well and he was very functional. He was a senior in high school, I mean in college when he committed suicide and was about to enter his last semester. Uh, he was also in a relationship and the world just seemed to be at a low place for him financially. He had a lot of uh, a lot of weight on his shoulders, and yet I saw him the night before he died, and he didn't mention to me um, what the debt was that he had, which was not extraordinary. Right. That probably seemed a lot for him. It did, but I could have wiped it out. Uh, in fact, he was going to come to our home um, on the following Saturday. I saw him late Thursday night. And he was going to come on Saturday because we were going to have a World Peace Prayer Day um, Mm -hmm. celebration at our home. We were going to have this big affair. And so one of the last things he said to me was that he'd see me on Saturday. And then in the morning, he worked all night as a guard, as a security guard. So that was his job. Mm -hmm. So apparently he worked all night. And um, the next morning, around 7 o'clock in the morning, he emailed me. And he also emailed his best friend saying that he had seen something so strange the night before on duty that he couldn't tell us what it was, that it was something extraordinarily strange and that that email was not secure enough to tell us what it was, Hmm. but that he would tell us the next day when he saw us. And um, then that was it, and then he was dead by noon. Oh, my goodness. So do you think he had a psychotic break or something? Uh, At the time, I did not. At the time, I thought that something, you know, when because what happened was the police just called me on the phone. Mm-hmm. and told me that they said, uh, Mrs. May, do you have a sending Paul? I said, yes. Well, he shot himself. And I said, okay, where, where is he? Let me go. I think he was thinking he was in the hospital. No, he's dead. I mean, that's what mm. he told me. Oh, my goodness. And I was in shock. I, I thought it was a joke, mm-hmm. and I couldn't believe it. I went immediately into shock. Yes. And then I could not believe that he had ended his own life, even though after several hours a detective came by. I insisted on seeing someone, and he came by and uh, said that it was suicide, self-inflicted. I said, it can't be. I have this email. Something very strange was going on. So I thought it was murder. Mm-hmm. And I went out uh, in the next day or so. Um, my husband and I hired the best detective we could find, mm-hmm. paid thousands of dollars. The detective spent over three weeks looking over everything. I went to the home where Paul was, his, his apartment. I, I'm i an artist, and I, I went ahead and I documented every bit of the area. I drew it out. I did the trajectory of the bullet, the whole thing, mm-hmm. trying to see. And he had set it up very strangely. He had one run water in the, in the um, you know, bathtub. He had set it up to make it look like other people were in the room. He had locked himself in. So he had planned it. And then I found his journal among his items. And in it, he described what he was going to do, but he described it two or three years beforehand. My goodness. He left no note. So he he purposely set it up to be a mystery. Huh. And eventually, of course, I had to come to grips with the fact that he had taken his life. But it wasn't an immediate immediate acceptance by any means. Mm-hmm. And how long was that before you accepted that? I think it was just a matter of weeks mm-hmm. when, um, you know, I kept going back to the police <laughs> and they kept getting out their tape recorders because I was so angry. Mm-hmm. And um, I kept insisting there had to be another explanation, that somebody had to come to the, had had to have struggled with him and there had to have been this 
and um, they kept telling me no, that wasn't the case. And so it, it probably was about a month before I was able to accept the fact that yes, he had taken his own life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Incredible. So he was at his apartment then. He was at his apartment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had just recently moved into the apartment with his girlfriend. I also found out on the same day that he was that I found out he was dead, that I was going to be a grandmother. Oh, my goodness. And so uh, he, he left his girlfriend pregnant. And so, so it was, uh, there were just a lot of things. Yes, I'd say so. So you have a, a real grandchild? Probably. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And are you connected? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And how about your husband? Uh, how did he deal with all this? Now, my husband is uh, Paul's stepfather. Oh, okay. So I was previously married. My uh-huh. former husband as well was involved with his present wife. So this complicated, extended family situation. Mm-hmm. And everyone was in shock. I mean, nobody saw this coming. Nobody nobody had a um, an, an inkling that this sort of thing was going to happen. Mm-hmm. and Or that it might. So what do you make of it now? How, how, what did you make of it then? As I know that you're involved with um, depression, uh, a group for uh, mentally ill or... Yes. Oh, my husband and I are very active in the survivors of suicide groups. However, we're also active in the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, which is called NAMI. Mm-hmm. And this is a national organization of, of people who are affected either through their family or personally by mental illness, including major depression. But at the time, we really didn't leap to that conclusion that Paul was even depressed. And I agree with what Father Johnson said. We had to finally come to the point to realize that an action such as this is not caused by a single event. Mm -hmm. An action such as this is very complex. It is mysterious. We will never know the complete factors involved. We would just never know. And so it's undoubtedly there are, there are many emotional, physical, and situational factors that came together to cause this overwhelming, um, shall we say, act of desperation. Now what about personal responsibility or guilt? Do you feel like uh, people who've had a suicide in their family have that? Oh, it's very, very common. The first thing I did was uh, begin to immediately have a sense of remorse. I must have failed as a mother. I went back thinking, oh gosh, if I had only done this differently or this differently or this differently. I remember the day that I followed that train of thought back. Had I never been born, this right. wouldn't have happened. It's one of those unending things and one of the most commonly, one of the most commonly felt emotions that makes this type of loss more complex than maybe some others. Not more difficult by any means, but just more complicated is the grief that is made worse by feeling of remorse. Had I only been there yeah. to hold his hand, I would have prevented it. But well, let, you, let me say one thing about this, and I think my listeners will identify with, with this. I felt very guilty that um, I had taken my son down to Washington, D.C., where he you know, was killed in an automobile accident. Had I gone out with him that night? Had I done this? Had I not done that? And I hear my other listeners who have kids that die of terminal illness say, um, if I if I'd heard him wake up, if I felt a lump earlier, you know, uh, there is just a huge amount of guilt in losing a child in every realm. And I'm, I'm sure that, that that's true. I'm certain that that is absolutely the, 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 the case, Gloria. However, in this case with suicide, there are people who will say to you mm-hmm. that. 
but had you parented differently, it might not have. So this comes into the stigma, the stigma which, which the, the other kinds of deaths, you don't get the stigma. You do have the guilt, but you don't get the stigma of everybody reinforcing it. That's right. Because they didn't reinforce my guilt. They're like, oh, you know, you know, it would have happened anyway. But yours, they did. There's some reinforcement and going so on. So I can remember one time I was I was leading the prayer of, in a in a worship service, not long after my son's death. You know, as a minister, I'm called upon to lead prayer. I'm called upon to preach and that kind of thing. And uh, a woman came up to me. I, she looked me right in the face and she said, "Well, if he had been better taught according to the faith, this wouldn't have happened." I'm mean, like. Duh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she might as well have thrown mud in my face. Yeah. Well, there is a thing, you know, of people uh, saying, didn't you catch it earlier? And, you know, there, there is a little bit of that that goes on, but I'm sure with uh, death by suicide, there's got to be a whole lot Absolutely. that goes on on a regular basis and reading about it in the paper. And also therapists um, look at your family to see, you know, what your family's doing who have made this happen. I mean, a lot of people go that direction. Right, and, of course, they look to family history, and, of course, I began to look into family history, and the two and two began to dawn on me, and realizing my uncle had committed suicide, I've, I've been able to trace suicides in my family back for five generations. Mm. And um, so I realize now that there is a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, there's a large genetic component to depression. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, do you feel that suicide is more an option? Did your son know about that? An option? Uh, for our family, you know, it, the, the other people have done it. Oh, you mean in terms of actually imitation. Well, yeah. These other losses were way before I was born even. Uh-huh. I doubt that. So you're thinking more it might be a genetic depression? Right. Kind of thing. Bipolar uh-huh. disorder, I believe. Bipolar. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing is that, however... There is this element of, should we say, imitation, contagion, which is a factor of suicide, and it really has a lot to do with how suicide is portrayed in the media. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's overly dramatized. Um, it's even in, you know, operas, and it's in, and it's in movies everywhere. It can be romanticized and, mm-hmm. and glorified, and we see this all the time. Uh, in fact, I was just listening to a program this morning where they're talking about training of very young jihadists from the time right. they are very tiny. Then they don't even call it suicide. They call it martyrdom. Right, exactly. And then it could be, well, you know, just literally the idea that if your friend commits suicide, then you might more likely, or if your sibling commits suicide, you might likely. And this is a factor. That's why many schools don't talk about it. Right. Oh, what comes up for you when you're like at a dinner party and somebody asks you how many kids you have or, you know, what? how do you deal with all this? In previous generations, often when someone ended their own life, they would never be mentioned again. And in some cultures, for instance, such as the Native American culture here in the Phoenix, Arizona area, among the Papagos and some of the others, the O'Donnell, I mean, <laughs> that's what they prefer to call themselves now. Um, <laughs> it's part of their beliefs that you do not ever mention that person's name again. And that, of course, used to be reinforced um, by the church and other other belief systems. Yeah, at one time you can even have a church burial. That's right. And uh, so it, the, the stigma goes back to medieval times. And therefore, people are often reluctant to mention it. And so what happens is if I'm saying at a dinner party or I'm meeting somebody or just casually riding with people in a car or something, and they're all talking about their children and their son or 
daughter are going to these wonderful universities or they just had the second grandchild or what's the thing. And then finally gets to me and I use him very quiet and then it gets to me and and Kay, tell us about your children. I do have children. I say, I had two, two sons. I have one surviving son. And usually that's the end of the conversation. But sometimes they say, oh, what happened? Did he die in a car crash or did he have a terminal illness? And then I'll say, um, he ended his own life. At which point the silence usually is deafening. It mm-hmm. usually it goes no further. But then, and I even had this happen to me one time I was interviewed on television, and the well-meaning host of the, of the show said, well, well, what caused him to do that? And at which point I say it wasn't a particular one factor mm-hmm. and that it still remains an unanswered question. And that's part of the pain of suicide in that there is no simple, one, direct, clear-cut answer. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you get to the point, and maybe you never do, um, where a, a child's death is, he's, they're dead, does it matter why? Is there any point? Well, you mean in terms of how I think about it or in terms of how others might think um, about it? How you think about it. For me, I haven't. It's been seven years. Mm-hmm. The the lingering aftermath of suicide is such that there's a ripple effect throughout the generations that persists. So mm-hmm. if, and of course I, I can't compare with my present living son, but I did, for instance, have a miscarriage many years ago. Um, I really was anticipating the birth of a daughter. Oh, yeah. She was going to be born in my own birth month of July. I really was looking forward to that. I was so excited. And then I had a spontaneous miscarriage. And I still, to this day, grieve the loss of that child. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even though I never bore her. Mm -hmm. And so there's a poignantness to that. Mm -hmm. But I do not have to carry with me the feeling that she did it on purpose. Mm-hmm. that she left me. But with Paul, I have his picture. I see it every day. I, and I'm still, and probably will to the day I die, coming to grips with turning it over through prayer so that I don't blame myself, so that I don't you know, enter into uh, self-recrimination. It's a constant prayerful approach, I find. Mm-hmm. Now, talk to us a little bit about your prayer group. I know you were running that um, uh, before your son died. Oh, yes. Our prayer group has been going for, meeting regularly uh, for more than 20 years now. And uh, it is a huge part of my ministry. In fact, the major focus of my ministry. Now, how many people are in the group? Well, it, it varies. Uh, usually we have a small group of about 12 people, but it varies and people come and go. And you can imagine we still have some people who originally were here 20 years ago mm-hmm. that are still coming. But then over the years you get people that come and go. So mm-hmm. it has served hundreds of people over the years. And, and you wrote a book about prayer groups. You were mm-hmm. writing one when Paul died. That's right. Uh, Pray Together Now, How to Find or Form a Prayer Group, which was uh, published by Element Books in 1999. And I was under contract and was actually completing my manuscript. So, for instance, I had the experience of speaking and interviewing one of the people for my book, James Twyman, three days after Paul's death. 
and I interviewed him on the phone, and he was he's a wonderful person, the, the peace troubadour, and I spoke with him, and he actually prayed with me because I broke down and started crying. Oh, of course, three days and, after. And um, I said my son's name was Paul. He said, well, what was your son's name? I said, was Paul. He said, his name is still Paul. Uh. And he prayed with me, and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I called the prayer m- members, members of my prayer group, immediately. I mean, that was the after calling my former husband and telling him and mm-hmm. a couple of other people in the family, I I called the prayer group and they came over immediately. I mean, there were the whole room room was filled with people immediately mm-hmm. and entering into prayer and hugging me and, and that kind of thing. And, and I can remember lying on the couch and yelling, literally yelling and moaning. Right. And members of the prayer group calling other people because we had to cancel a big prayer function the day after, you know, and so mm-hmm. they had to call and say, you know, this is not going to be, it's, you know, and, and you know, and so it was, we couldn't hold everybody in, in uh, the room, the next prayer group, but I couldn't lead it. I was so choked up, somebody else led it. Well, tell me, um, did you feel like your faith was tested through this? Well, faith is always tested in, in living. Um, it, I found great comfort in my faith. I, I think that had I not had that perspective, I would not have been able to cope. Because mm-hmm. what I found was I, you know, had this enormous reaction to the shock and the loss. I, I mean, really, really, first anger and then mm-hmm. crying and then yelling and moaning and all this. But at the deep core of it, because so many people were praying with me and for me, the people of different faiths. I mean, not just one faith, not just in one denomination, but all different faiths. Right. And so I felt this odd inner peace. Like at the core, there was an inner peace, but all this turmoil around. So it was mm-hmm. like I was standing in the eye of the storm, but it was only through prayer. Uh, I, I didn't question God or, or say, oh, my God, why did this happen to me and all that kind of stuff. That, that didn't really happen. It was that I turned to prayer because I was so sub- uh, submerged in it. I was so much involved in it uh, that I was really the first recipient of the benefit of my book because <laughs> I wrote the book uh. to benefit people who needed prayer. And I was the first and probably the primary recipient of that because I was able to contact thousands of people literally throughout the world. Um, somebody took my prayer request and put it on the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And somebody uh. was, you know, there were Catholic nuns who were praying for me in the monastery and there, there were people in the New Age who were praying. And, you know, it was on and on and on. You know? Right. Amazing. Yeah, it, it, it truly was. So has forgiveness been a factor for you in this? Oh, of course. And how's that worked for you? Of Talk course. A little bit about that. First, I have to forgive myself for my shortcomings and failures in this process. And, of course, to forgive Paul for the choice that I feel that he made out of his desperation. And to forgive everyone else who was involved who might have in any way contributed. And that has not been easy. It's a continuing process. Forgiveness to me, is a continuing process. It's not like, well, hey, we're forgiving today and that'll be it. No, it's constant. If you, you go back and you go back and you go back and and it's a matter of easier, 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 but you still have to forgive. Now, has that been a part of your involvement with your prayer group? Oh, absolutely. How does that go? How does that work? Well, every time we have a prayer meeting, um, what we is we... In the beginning, in the preparation for prayer, is that we go through first counting our blessings and then forgiving others. Because this is a scriptural thing. It says if you have anything against anyone, 
if when you come to worship, go first and clear that up and then come and worship. And this is, it's scriptural, you have to do that. So what you do is every time before you approach prayer, you count your blessings, get yourself to the place where you feel abundant, and then from a place of abundance, you can reach out and wish that abundance on others, therefore forgiving. Now that's a wonderful thought. Give of your own abundance to others, you therefore forgive, you clear it up, and then you move forth. Otherwise, your your prayers are kind of um, stuck. At least mine gets stuck in that roundabout business of, well, you know, I, I wish everybody love and peace except for these people that I wish Well, Kay, um, when we went to break, um, I asked you if there was anything else that you uh, wanted to bring up, and you were talking about some groups, which I would like to get to. But first, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, an issue that I find have found a little bit uh, puzzling, is that uh, we have some listeners and some groups out there that feel that uh, you should not say that your child committed suicide. And um, I'm kind of puzzled by that. Have you got any thoughts on it? It's not an it's not an issue that's ever come up to me before. Uh, my son did commit an act that was a terminal act. He shot himself. Mm-hmm. Now he did it because I believe because he was depressed for many reasons. One of them probably is his ongoing battle with bipolar disorder. I did not know at the time that he had that. Now I have a surviving son who also suffers from serious depression who has not ended his life and is on medication. And mm-hmm. so depression is a treatable condition. Now, there are some forms of depression which are not amenable to to treatment in the same way, and there are many forms of depression, and that's why uh, my husband and I are very involved with the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill mm-hmm. and the Survivors of Suicide Impact and also the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and American Society or Association of Suicidology. All of these are groups which are presently involved in research to prevent incidents such as what happened with our son Paul. Mm-hmm. But in all of those groups, is, they might say committed suicide. Pardon me? Yeah, in all the groups, they might say committed suicide. Of course. I mean, I, I, I've never had a issue with that. Yeah, the only reason I ask that is because um, I feel that suicide is such a difficult topic for people to discuss if they are willing to come forward and talk about, oh, your child committed suicide. Um, I get a little concerned that you wouldn't want to say, uh, no, we don't say that. We say died by. I don't make that distinction. Might be correcting them a bit. Well, if people want to get a hold of those organizations, how would they do that? And talk about your website. and Well, definitely... um, the NAMI, of course, the uh, tell what that is again. The National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. You can go on the internet and just put in that, and you can get information. But they have an 800 number as well, 1-800-626-5022. So that's 1-800-626-5022. The Survivors of Suicide does have a 24-hour crisis line. And that is 1-800-SUICIDE, S-U-I-C-I-D-E, or 480, in the Phoenix area, 480-784-1500. And that would be if you had other family members that you were concerned about? No, that would be if someone is in at risk of committing right. suicide. Right. And then also the 
American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is based in New York, uh, has a website, mm-hmm. AFSP.org, and the American Association for Suicidology also, which mm-hmm. is out of Washington, D.C., is Suicidology.org. Now, those are, are basically for if you're concerned that somebody's going to kill themselves. And now, what about if somebody already has? What what then groups we, do you suggest? Then we have the Survivors of Suicide Network. And we do have, uh, there's a Survivor E-Network from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And they have survivor support groups. Uh, the American Association for Suicidology also. Um, they all do provide information and support for survivors, as well as um, national days, conferences. Uh, there's a whole suicide awareness, uh, National Suicide Awareness Week, which I believe is in May every year. Uh, so there are many, many programs, a lot more education at this time. Right. Uh, however, a lot of it's for prevention and... And, and survivors, yeah. survivors, people... and. And there's where there's some confusion, again, with terminology. Because sometimes people think, well, survivors of suicide. You're not a survivor of suicide. If you've lost somebody to suicide, they think it would be somebody who has survived a suicide attempt. However, there are groups through NAMI and other mental health organizations for people who have been attempters. However, those of us who have lost a loved one to suicide um, are also supported by these groups, which are in the area of prevention because there is a, a much higher risk among people uh, who have lost someone. Right, and that's a scary thing, I'm sure, for everyone out there who, who has uh, worrying about their other kids or other family members. Absolutely. It's a constant concern. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with that? Well, I deal with it through prayer and through education and through listening to my loved ones, um, and if there is a problem, making certain that they are compliant with their meds, uh, if they are on medications, making certain that they have peers and others to speak to, because sometimes you're not, as as a young person, you're not necessarily going to want to speak to your parent, but you would maybe speak to a peer. Of course, in the end, people do have their free agency. Absolutely. And and we don't bear all responsibility for everything people do in their life. Absolutely. And it, yet there are huge contributing factors from depression. Absolutely. And depression is a disease, and it is a disease which can be fatal. And so there's more and more and more information now and research that takes this out of the realm of a moral decision and the idea, well, if you if you... End your life by suicide, it's somehow a moral defect. That that this is, no, this is not the case. My son, I feel, was suffering from an undiagnosed and untreated disorder, which was just as fatal as if he'd had cancer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Kay Randall-Make, do you please uh, tell people how they could get in touch with you? And also, you are a fabulous artist, and you sent me these wonderful cards with chili peppers on them that I love. <laughs> and do you sell those? And uh, well, yes. Uh, I have um, wonderful. My, my art site is www.krandallmaysart.com and then it's uh, you can reach me through my regular website, uh, krandallmay, and that's C-A-Y-R-A-N-D-A-L-L-M-A-Y.com. 
But the uh, the Chiles have a bit of a story. Um, oh, yeah. After a few months, I was not able to paint um, or draw. Then the first thing I did was draw, I, I did a collage of Paul's art, his paper from his school. I did a collage with that, of, of the balloons that we released at his memorial. Uh-huh. And then further on, a few months later, I began painting chili peppers. And it was the paintings of the chili peppers that took me for a whole year, and I painted chilies to represent my own, own grief process. And and with the seeds inside as hope. Yes, the seeds <laughs> of hope, the idea of life coming from this. But to me, grief, the grief I was experiencing hurt, and there was physical pain with it. And right. it was a burning kind of pain, Absolutely. just like when you eat chili peppers. And right. It was the only way I could disc- I, I could show it visually with, that I was burning up inside. Um, They're beautiful cards and done with such heart. It's time for us to end our show now, and I want to thank you, Kay Randall May, for being on the show. It's been wonderful, and uh, you're an amazing person, and I hope um, all of those out there have who are suffering uh, the loss of a loved one will be able to find some solace in this and also some great ideas on prayer and, and get in touch with me or Kay uh, if we can uh, be a support to you. Thank you, Gloria. Thank, thank you for this opportunity. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.